thank you very much for coming. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the second lecture in the uh, new Faith and Reason lecture series at Christendom College. This series was born in the spirit of Faith and Reason, the academic journal of, uh, of Christendom College. The mission of that journal was to create an educated Catholic laity, uh, a laity in love with all that is good and beautiful and true. This lecture series hopes to continue that mission, but by focusing more particularly on the students of Christendom College. The lecture series will allow individual academic departments to bring speakers to present meaningful ideas to the majors, as well as to the college community. This year, the series is in the hands of the Department of English Language and Literature, and we've invited two speakers, Dr. Michael Mack, who spoke in February on Shakespeare's Hamlet, and today, Dr. Gerard Wegemer. Uh, I am pleased to introduce Dr. Wegemer to you now. Dr. Wegemer is director of the Center for Thomas More Studies and professor of English at the University of Dallas. He, he has delivered many lectures and has written several articles and books on the English Renaissance and St. Thomas More. And he has served as a member of the board of editors for Moriana, the international journal on Thomas More and his times. Dr. Wegemer has graduate degrees from, uh, in political philosophy and Renaissance literature from the University of Notre Dame, from Boston College, and from Georgetown. He co-authored a Thomas More source book published by CUA Press in 2004, and he wrote Thomas More and Statesmanship in 1996, Thomas More Portrait of Courage, published by Scepter in 1995, and The Sadness of Christ and Final Prayers and Instructions by St. Thomas More, also published by Scepter in 1993. Dr. Wegemer's latest book, Young Thomas More and the Arts of Liberty, is due to be published this year by Cambridge University Press. I had the blessing of taking classes taught by Dr. Wegemer at the University of Dallas. I think he had the curse of having me in class. And it is with, <laughs> and it is with great fondness uh, and gratitude that I recall the gift of, uh, his gift of wisdom and, uh, and of his example, not only as a man of letters, but as a man for all seasons. Who better than to introduce the man for all seasons, St. Thomas More. Please join me in welcoming Dr. George. Well, thank you for this invitation to speak. It's been a delight to come to this place that I've admired for a long time and applaud the work that you're doing here. Imagine that as a youth, you saw your country in war and you came to see that the natural leaders of your country promoted war. Despite its devastating effects on their people, your people, on their families and your families. And you saw that that war would continue unless natural leaders might be persuaded or forced to change. Force you reason would be impossible and counterproductive. But persuasion also would seem impossible. That is the situation that Cicero faced as the Roman Republic was collapsing and the most powerful leaders were fighting for control and greater domination. That is the situation that Thomas More faced. As your timeline indicates below the picture of Margaret More on your handout, 
Thomas More was eight years old when the Wars of the Roses was finally over. But they were expected to begin again. Moore wrote on your timeline in 1509 when Henry VIII came to the throne an ode that compares young Henry VIII to Achilles. Achilles dragging the body of Hector around in the chariot. Um, Moore indicates that the situation is so bad in Rome that he expects civil war again. This was an extraordinary motive for him to try to understand the cultural forces and to find a solution. Moore refused to work for Henry VIII until Wolsey and Henry VIII agreed in 1517 on your timeline to finally sign a pact of universal peace. And on Thomas More's tombstone, which he wrote two years before he died, as an explanation of his life, he indicates his most important task in life had been to promote peace, and that he had succeeded in getting a universal peace pact signed. The best way to introduce you to Thomas More is through his family. This is a very important historical artifact Moore is the one who invited Holbein, probably the greatest portrait painter and painter uh, of that period, to England to give him a new start. Holbein did a sketch of the Moore family, and then it was corrected by Moore and the family, and we have this particular copy of that final painting. You'll notice that uh, they're all quite formally dressed. And while we're talking, you might think you could figure out the puzzle in this painting. Why are they all so nicely dressed, looking in different directions, doing different things? The family monkey, you can't see too well here, is loose. You've got musical instruments in the back. And you have these daughters all holding Latin books. And, as you can see on your... And uh, we can actually read the text of the open book. There's also another book of Seneca here under Elizabeth's arm. And there's Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy on the back table. What moment did Moore capture and why? This is also an important painting to give you a sense of Thomas Moore's Renaissance humanism. This is the painting, the picture, that the Parliament decided to put outside the House of Commons early last century. It's a famous incident in which Moore is facing down Wolsey, who, with all the force of the king's power, pickaxes and uh, weapons, had come to the Parliament to lobby for a new war tax. Moore disagreed with the House of Commons this goes against the ancient liberties of the house. Well, what do you do? <coughs> the powers that be forced their way in. Well, you use the results of your good liberal education, and you be clever. What Moore does in agreeing, and he has the agreement of all the house behind him, that they will let Wolsey speak, but then say nothing. Wolsey speaks, 
He asks for responses. No one responds. He gives a speech again. He asks for more response. No response. He says to Moore, you're the Speaker of the House. Give me a response. Moore gets down on his knees and says, your majesty has overwhelmed us, and how could I possibly put in my one mouth the voice of all these people? Woolsey gets angry and leaves. And more successfully, without a war, without confrontation, without a a warring confrontation, protects the liberty of the house. This is a life-size mural outside the entrance of Parliament today. Moore's gesture with an open hand to two things, Book of Laws on the table and scepter. Another important image which the English preserved, this is the oldest image of Thomas Moore in 1523. He's down here at the bottom. The artist has completed several days to make this picture happen historically. This was the painting that accompanied the notes to the 1523 Parliament. And this is where Moore is standing before the bar with the House of Commons, giving the first speech, arguing for free speech, that has ever been recorded. And it gives metaphysical reasons. We need free speech because we need each other's perceptions of what's true in order to grasp what's true in a practical situation. This is the frontispiece of a book edited in Thomas More's house by Erasmus. And a book of Seneca, Collected Works. One of the featured items in the index is Seneca's essay on liberal education. But notice several things here. You've got Lady Humanitas at the top. You have the snake and the dove at the bottom. And notice who's pushing and pulling this triumphal uh, chariot of Humanitas. Now notice she's visually reading and uh, it's actually Virgil and Cicero who are pushing. <laughs> Virgil has the laurel crown of the poet. Bareheaded Cicero is the statesman. And on this side, you have laurel crown Homer pulling and you have Demosthenes, the statesman, pulling. Cicero was a very important character for Thomas More and was Seneca. Cicero is the one who actually coins the word humanitas in the Latin language and he gives a very definite definition of it. He says that the liberal arts were devised for the purpose of fashioning. This term is important because it's related to his translation for how the platonic ideas fashion human beings. The minds of the young according to humanitas and virtue. Seneca will use this word dozens of times in the spirit of Cicero, also trying to promote a culture of peace and justice, even though he works for Nero, the great tyrant, who eventually brings about Seneca's death, just as Cicero finds his death in trying to protect justice and peace. But Seneca gives 
one of the clearest definitions of humanitas being that idea according to which a person fashions themselves. As we'll see in a few minutes, Thomas More is absolutely convinced that human beings are free. There need to be arts of liberty. There need to be a conscious plan for each person and for each nation to fashion themselves to be free. And this term fashioning in Latin also has the connotation of sculpturing, uh, a work of art. Uh, And Cicero challenges Julius Caesar in particular, but also all the warlords controlling Rome at the fall of the the Republic, to work out your own ideas and sift your thoughts so as to see what conception and idea of a good person they contain. Otherwise, you can end up as a Caesar who overturned all the laws, human and divine, to achieve for himself a first place, fashioning fashioned according to his own erroneous opinions. Moore actually thought uh, that he could help change Henry VIII's mind as Cicero thought, hoped, that he could change Caesar's mind. Neither succeeded, but both knew that both individuals were free and that they might succeed. This will be another important element to the statesmanship and to the understanding of liberal arts that we'll come back to. Now, here is another image of what I'll call Renaissance humanism. This is a very crude set of snakes protecting a dove. And this is the book plate used by one of the most famous humanist publishers of the time, Froben. Moore likes this a lot. He gets a better image done for his utopia. This is actually published with his utopia. And uh, notice that his snakes are crowned. And lo and behold, what shape do they form? The symbol of health. And it's surrounded by Latin, Greek, and Hebrew equivalents of Christ's command that we should be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We'll come back to that as well. Here's a little closer. And uh, there is a difference here from the symbol of health. Instead of one snake, they include two snakes. A true dialectic of minds being actually necessary uh, in the practical world. Uh, And it's important, too, that the snakes are crowned. Now, that is the primary role of liberal education. It's to perfect the intellect to see the world, ourselves, and nature as they are. And to be equipped to do that, to use that mind, in situations that are new, difficult, and problematic. Now on your handout, your second handout, go to the first selection uh, from St. Basil the Great. Moore imitates this. He uses it in his two most important statements about liberal arts. 
And I'd like to just read this very important uh, work. This is the first Greek text that is published in Florence. It's translated by one of the founders of the Florentine Academy, who becomes Chancellor of Florence, because he thinks it's so important for Florence's self-education and self-government. And it's the defense of classical learning, of pagan learning, of reason at its best. With an education in pagan learning, St. Basil the Great says, we give, as it were, in shadows and reflections, a preliminary training to the eye of the soul, imitating those who perform their drills in military tactics, who after they have gained experience by means of gymnastic exercises for the arms, dance steps for the feet, enjoy what it, when it comes to the combat, the profit derived from what has been done in sport. So we also must consider that a contest, not a military one, but an intellectual and cultural one, a spiritual one, the greatest of all contests lies before us, for which we must do all things, and in preparation for it, must strive to be to the best of our power, and must associate with poets and historians and orators and with all men from whom there is any prospect of benefit with reference to the care of our soul. Therefore, just as dyers prepare by certain treatments whatever material it receives the dye, and then apply the color, whether it be purple or some other hue, so we also in the same manner must first, must first, If the glory of the good is to abide with us indelible for all time, be instructed by these outside means, and then shall understand the sacred and mystical teachings. This is a perfect issue of faith and reason. Faith needs reason. Reason needs faith. And, in fact, St. Basil says that you can't appreciate your faith and the, and the great mysteries of Scripture without human experience, without reflection, to know its place, its value, its importance. Now, uh, the second selection, notice that on line 9, Basil po uh, points out poets, historians, and orators are particularly important for the practical engagement, the practical uh, engagement of life. Notice that on line uh, 19, uh, 21 and 22, Moore quotes the same three, and he adds one, which we'll come back to. He adds law to it. He doesn't do that um, in selection two in 1518 when he gives another very similar defense of liberal education. But Moore says in both places that liberal education prepares the soul for virtue. Now, why does he say liberal education prepares the soul for virtue? Why not say it helps develop virtue? Why doesn't say it brings about virtue? Because it doesn't. You can be a very cruel tyrant and have a liberal education and be a pretty good one. Liberal education is to train the mind and to give you the tools to discover what's 
the best way of life. But you have to choose the best way of life. Hitler's top advisors were liberally educated people. The best were. So, very interesting that liberal education can prepare you for virtue. And we're going to make a difference here, and which we'll come to in just a minute. What I'm going to do for the next few minutes is to share with you what I discovered in the last three years after studying Thomas More for 20, uh, that he has four major arts needed for liberty. One art are the liberal arts. The second art, more important to Thomas More, is the art of virtue. And he does present virtue as an art, a self-fashioning, according to an idea, according to an understanding of life and the person, that requires repeated, constant, personal effort. No one becomes virtuous by accident. You might be equipped for virtue by very good parents, very good education, but everyone must choose if that is the path I'll follow, and if I will equip myself with the personal character necessary to live up to the great demands of truth and justice. It's why I gave you quotes selection three and four. These are two works that Moore writes in the Tower, thinking back over his long life. And he points out in selection three that true character, strength of character, that strength which in rational creatures is called virtue, can never exist without prudence. Working through grace, with diligent effort on our part, reason will engender and set sure in us not a sudden slight disposition towards enduring something for God's sake, but, by long continuance, a strong, deep-rooted habit. Then we will not be a reed, like a reed ready to wave with every wind, or like a rootless tree, barely up on one end in a loose heap of sand that with a blast or two can be blown down. And then in his very last work, Moore compares the truly great human being to brave and prudent soldiers, not senseless and foolish, for in man reason must reign like a king, like those crowned serpents. But reason that has guided the serpent to fashion themselves in the work of health not in the poisonous work of death. So, like a liberal education, which takes tremendous effort, we see where our intellectual strengths and weaknesses are, and we strive to overcome the weaknesses and improve the strengths. Virtue requires the same effort, but it's a different kind of effort. It's forging my character to have those deep roots forged every day by every action that we choose to do or not to do. 
There's a saying from Heraclitus, choose your character, choose your fate. This is very much in more spirit of why virtue is a necessary art of liberty. For a character to be self-governed and free, reasoned, strengthened, and informed by faith must guide our ship. Now, going back to the book that Margaret has in her hand, notice that it's a text about sailing a ship. And it's in the context of Oedipus, who didn't know how to sail his ship. And when confronted by a misperception of himself, a misperception of reality, ended up blinding himself. But notice in the second paragraph that gives that boldened quote from the book that's open, were it mine to shape fate at my will, I would trim my sails to gentle winds lest my yard tremble bent neath a heavy blast. Now, in this, it's very interesting that Moore chooses not a military metaphor to explain liberal education, but the metaphor of sailing. And of course, gubernance, the Latin word for piloting, for sailing, that's our word for governing. Uh, Basil uses a military uh, images, military drill, military practice, same as intellectual practice. Now the third art needed for liberty for Thomas More, both personal and political, is law. And uh, notice in selection two that Moore has added law to one of the studies needed to have the prudential judgment for guiding one's own life and the life of a country. Law is a work of reason or revelation. We have laws in the Bible. We have laws that good legislators have come up with. If political reason, good law is the work of wise and experienced fathers of their country, arising, those laws arising from an intimate knowledge of their country's character, its history, its customs, what it's capable of doing, what it has done, what it might be able to do with good leadership, aiming at the common good or res publica, the shared public things. Notice in Selection 5 that when five London playwrights write a play about Thomas More in Elizabeth's time, which never gets by the censors, five London playwrights of widely different theological and political leanings. One of them is a spy who brings Catholics to death. Another is Shakespeare who does the two most important scenes. Uh, They all admire Thomas More. And this is one of the summary judgments about this extraordinary person. Selection five. Thomas More is great in study That's the statesman's grace. That study is the general watch of England. In it, the the prince's safety and the peace that shines upon our commonwealth are forged by loyal industry. Peace and justice are very difficult to achieve within oneself, within a family, 
within any community, within a nation. It takes a forging process by a knowledgeable person with loyal industry. This is what... Uh, this is Cicero's also contribution and why Cicero is so important for Thomas More. Cicero compares the laws of a nation to the mind of an individual. And just as the mind has to work to be truthful and accurate and clear and follow through consequences, so the laws of a nation need to do the same thing. Now the third art necessary for liberty and this more in the political realm, is what traditionally had been called rhetoric, a part of liberal education, but more uses it in a broader understanding, meaning all the available means of persuasion to move people to a common good. And because human beings are free and are meant to rule themselves, Rhetoric is the art that recognizes that the way of a civilized country is to use free persuasion, not simply political force. And this is why your education is so important. To be able to put in context, in the broadest context of nature, history, God's laws and man's laws, what one can do for the common good and to bring the greatest measure of peace and justice that might be possible in your, in your time. Now what did Thomas More do as a young man when he saw that his country was plagued by civil war? After law school, beginning at age 24, when he was called to the bar, he took up the study of Greek in a serious way, and for the next 14 years, immersed himself in the Greek, Roman, and patristic classics early in the morning when the family was asleep. In this time, he, after three years, he's such a master of Greek, he challenges Erasmus to a Greek translating contest of Lucian's dialogues. Now, why Lucian? the person famous in some circles for seeming to be an atheist and seeming to be very disrespectful of religion. But Lucian is also one of the finest stylists and one of the funniest philosophic writers to use comedy to bring people to face their culture's prejudices. He does believe in transcendence. He does believe in justice, but not the type of gods that, of course, Homer presents <laughs> and criticizes in the same way that Lucian does. He engages people in an attractive way to think about their most basic prejudices about life and to think through them to what is true. And more challenges Erasmus to write a declamation as to what you might do if faced if you lived in a in a 
tyrannical society. This is his first published work. He's thinking at 27 about the tyranny he's experienced and that he knows will probably continue. He also writes his own version of England's history based upon and comparing it with the Roman historians and the Greek historians. Trying to understand what are the forces in his culture for good, but also that's leading it to self-destruction, to civil war. And he writes his own version of Plato's Republic, his own his utopia, which is a constant allusion to Plato's deep investigation to the nature of justice and the nature of the human person. He also translates over 180 Greek epigrams, and he himself composes another 120 English epigrams, which are masterpieces. That's what he's doing intellectually from the age of 24 until he joins the king's court when he is 40 years old. And when he joins the king's court, only once Wolsey and Henry have agreed to work for peace, not to be invading other Christian princes and trying to take over their land. Spiritually, in those early 20s, Moore apprentices himself to the Carthusians, where he learns the arts of spiritual battle. In fact, he writes rhyme royal poetry about the 12 rules of spiritual combat. The companion piece are the 12 properties of a lover, in which he first describes in each of the stanzas, 12 stanzas, the freshest, most powerful sentiments of one person in love with another. And then he applies that in the second stanza of each of these 12 parts to God. So we love human beings one spouse uh, in the most strongest and most human way. Well, so we must treat God. And throughout his life, Moore continues this aspect of his own personal forging, figuring forth of his character. As, and if time allows, he does this until the very last moment of his life. Because you cannot explain the humor for which Moore is most famous, in which the play Sir Thomas Moore, done by these five London playwrights, presents at every phase of his life. In every one of these acts, five acts, there are all the collected Thomas Moore jokes uh, and his uh, unusual uh, wit presented in difficult situations. Moore fights to the end of his life for good humor and to use that good humor to support those around him. How else could you explain someone who can joke with their jailer and with their executioner after he's lost everything and he knows that his family is going to be in an extraordinarily difficult situation for the rest of their lives? Uh, 
Thomas More is bringing the Renaissance to England has all these aspects of using the best of the pagan culture, but also thinking through deeply every aspect of the best of that pagan culture with the best of the Christian culture. And that's why for Thomas More, his best image of humanitas is a Christ suffering for love in joy. On the uh, commemorative card that I've passed out to you, this was done for Thomas More when he was made patron of statesman in the year 2000. Look at the last quote on the back of the page. This is something that he writes as a youth. He writes then, You shall no pleasure comparable find to the inward gladness of a virtuous mind. The monkey in the picture, the family fool, who's the only one looking at us, inviting us into the painting, the, the animals, the beautiful flowers, the family warmth, the discussion that's going on, this is more statement about what Christian Renaissance humanism means. The fullness of culture in an atmosphere of love and joy. There's nothing quite like it in any other classical author. Cicero talks about the essential quality and necessity of having jests in a good speech. <laughs> It, of course, it just makes sense to tell good jokes, uh, to warm up your audience, and perhaps to get them on your side. But for more, it's a whole way of life. And he says, jokes and jesting should be the sauce, not the meat. Now, this is one area, for instance, that he himself forged his own character. This is a naturally funny person with a very sharp wit. And we see it's quite sharp early in his life. He has to temper that. And those of you who have a good wit, and those of you who know people have good wit, you realize that they're really powerful people. They can embarrass you easily. And they can win easily. And they can be the center of attention easily. But is that, for more, the most appropriate action for this person at this time in this situation? Imagine the self-control needed to control such a great power. Um, so Moore's good humor was not accidental. It was an attitude towards life that he cultivated from his very earliest years. He chose from all the authors he could have chosen. Good-humored Lucian, the best classical comedian who uses his humor at its best in a philosophic manner to get people to reflect upon their deepest prejudices. And in a sense, I'm proposing that Moore's good humor was a, was a rhetorical strategy. Or better, a philosophically informed way of life and of speech that aimed at free action True persuasion, not forced compliance. Wolsey, the most powerful person in the realm, 
was known to be afraid of Thomas More. Because Thomas More couldn't be intimidated. And he didn't lose his composure under pressure. In fact, More had a reputation for the greater the pressure, the more difficult the circumstances, the better his wit. He rose to the occasion of the interpersonal battles of life by using all of his liberal education to be a genuinely free person. Even in prison, even in an unjust death. In his, when he was asked by the bishops of England to take up the uh, heretical books of the time and read them and defend the church, he became known by his opponents as Master Mock. That more showed the satirical implications of what they were saying. He got people to laugh at the absurdities of some of the ideas being presented in his culture. His most famous and literary, uh, most famous literary work, the witty and satirical Utopia, is supposedly about a republic of free and virtuous people, but not quite as you'll see when you read that with Dr. Marciani uh, next semester, if you have the good opportunity. Historically, Moore's most influential work was probably the history of Richard III, an account of the tragic Richard representing a tragic time of England's history of war and constant hatred and faction, which Moore never published in his own lifetime but which Shakespeare studied closely as he began his career as a playwright. And Shakespeare bases his first four plays on Moore's history. His tragedy of Richard III and the three parts of Henry VI. Why wouldn't Moore have published this dazzling rhetorical masterpiece that gives hundreds of allusions to the classical Greek and Roman authors in one version and then he writes a separate version to a different audience in English alluding to hundreds of English proverbs these are both masterpieces why didn't he publish it I think two reasons one is it was too tragic too revealing too damning about the real causes of the English wars. And he chose a more, a less confrontational, a, le a more inviting method of reflection in the utopia. Utopia is a dazzling work of wit. People are debating today. There's no accepted interpretation of utopia. But it does accomplish the task that Lucian set out, and that is to think about the very basic structure of your of your republic of your society and why you're doing it the way you're doing it but apart from those elements uh, there's also the family portrait uh, which Moore uh, actually depicts the family school all the children have books in their hands Moore's fame Moore, Moore's 
family was famous throughout Europe uh, as having the most educated daughters around. Uh, Margaret reads Greek and Latin. Her daughter reads Greek and Latin. Her daughter translates Greek and Latin. Uh, and uh, Margaret herself translates Rasmus's works. It's a published author. Uh, but it's a happy family. They have great conversations. In fact, Moore changes Erasmus's opinion of liberal education. Erasmus, when he first knows Moore, doesn't think women should be educated. It's a waste of time. Prejudice of the age. Moore convinces him that he was wrong. <laughs> and Moore also, according to Erasmus, changes the whole accepted understanding of what a liberally of what an educated person is in in England. Here's Erasmus. It's one of the times when Erasmus calls Moore a man for all seasons when he justifies and explains Moore's marvelous method of liberal education. It would be hard to find anyone who has was more fully a man for all seasons. And all men who, uh, who was more ready to oblige, more easily available for meeting, more lively in conversation, or who combined so much real wisdom with such charm of character. The result is that there is hardly any one of our nobles who would reckon his children worthy of their ancestry if they had no education in liberal studies. Yes, Moore may have been killed unjustly, but his memory, his achievements lived on. First, the achievement of his character, his ability to be free under any circumstances, and to teach his children to do the same. How will you navigate your ship in the storms and in the changing seas and tides that you will face? How will you be free from disappointment, that debilitating, from anger, from unmoderated longing for justice? Here I think Moore's example can be extraordinarily helpful. A fullness of humanity, rarely achieved and rarely dramatized so clearly and so powerfully and so attractively. Moore embodies that fullness of faith, that fullness of a most highly cultivated reason, the fullness of family and political life, shown in good humor of a self-fashioned character who deeply reflected about his life. In your own lives, the greatest battles will be within. To be calm, self-governed, thinking, not mad, uh, in the painting, the alternative to mad Odysseus is learning how to pilot a ship with calm, good reason. Thinking like the good humored captain who fights to control himself so that he can pilot the ship 
not regardless of the storms, but precisely in the storms. And that's why Moore invites you and me to fashion ourselves in faith and reason, in liberal education, but in joy, that your strength of character be the strong support that Moore has been for anyone facing situations as difficult or less difficult than he. I'll stop there and take questions.